Moderna asks the Food and Drug Administration to authorize its COVID vaccine for kids under five, something the agency likely won't consider until June. It's Thursday, April 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, why the FDA apparently doesn't plan to consider the request for at least a month, also this hour. After yesterday's U.S.-Russia prisoner swap, the story of one American still trapped in Russian custody after traveling there for a wedding four years ago. The night of the wedding, before the wedding even started, he was entrapped by the security services, by a, a friend, and he disappeared. And how Polish farmers on the border with Ukraine have stepped up to organize weekly shipments of protective equipment to the front lines. It's 401. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. With no end in sight to Ukraine's desperate battle against Russian invaders, Kyiv is anxious to secure more U.S. funding. Today, President Biden said he'd ask Congress to authorize $33 billion, double the amount of funding the U.S. has already committed to Ukraine. I just uh, signed a request to Congress for critical security, economic and humanitarian assistance uh, to help uh, Ukraine continue to counter Putin's aggression and uh, at a very pivotal moment. Biden says part of the funding will be used to help other countries reduce their reliance on Russian weapons. In Moscow, NPR's Charles Maine says the Kremlin issued a new warning against the West today. In his daily briefing with reporters, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said increasingly heavy weaponry pumped into Ukraine threatened the security of all of Europe. Russian authorities in recent days have repeatedly blamed Western military aid for fueling the conflict and being behind a series of disputed attacks on Russian territory near the Ukrainian border. President Vladimir Putin argues interference of outside powers in Ukraine is creating strategic threats to Russia itself, but insists Russia's defenses are up to the challenge. The West should know that our retaliatory strikes will be lightning fast, Putin says, adding Russia has the latest weapons and is ready to use them if necessary. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The government reports the U.S. economy shrank at an annualized rate of 1.4 percent in the first three months of 2022. However, many economists looking at consumer spending, business activity, job strength are still expressing optimism about the economy's performance ahead. We see the Nasdaq is up 382 points, more than 3 percent. The Dow is up 1.8 percent. S&P risen 2.5 percent. The Attorney General's office in California has opened an investigation into the country's biggest oil and gas companies. The investigation alleges the companies deceive the American public into believing plastic is more recyclable than it really is. Here's NPR's Laura Sullivan. California Attorney General Rob Bonta says oil and gas companies have engaged in what he calls an aggressive campaign to mislead the public about the viability of recycling plastic. He says the companies have benefited financially for decades from the alleged deception. Bonta says his office has so far subpoenaed ExxonMobil, seeking information and documents to determine what the company has known internally. The announcement cites NPR's investigation with PBS Frontline in 2020, which uncovered documents showing top oil and plastic officials knew widespread recycling of plastic would likely never happen. Industry officials did not immediately respond for comment. Laura Sullivan, NPR News, Washington. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up more than 600 points or 1.8 percent. 
It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The MBTA is moving to add 150 new jobs to improve safety. The money for the new safety workers is included in the T's next draft budget, which includes an 8% increase in spending and no fare hikes or service cuts. A final vote on the budget is expected later this spring. Meantime, T General Manager Steve Poftak says the agency has completed inspections on all the trolley cars similar to the one that dragged a passenger to his death last month. It is something that we need to pause and take note of and also ensure that we as an organization are doing everything we can to keep our customers and our employees safe. Federal investigators have also inspected the red line train car door that trapped Robinson Lallin at the Broadway station. A former MBTA police officer has changed his plea on charges that he assaulted a man who refused to get off a bus and filed a false report to cover it up. Prosecutors charged Nicholas Morrissey with violating the rights of the 63-year-old man who was experiencing homelessness. Yesterday, he acknowledged the government has sufficient evidence to support a guilty finding. The judge granted a continuance for 18 months, which means the case will be dropped if Morrissey completes probation. Leaders in the state Senate have scheduled a vote on a bill that would allow people in the country without documentation to apply for a driver's license. House passed a similar bill back in February. Senate President Karen Spilka says the proposal is good for public safety. Governor Charlie Baker says he has concerns with the idea. The vote is set for next Thursday. The National Weather Service says there's an elevated fire risk across the entire state today and tomorrow. Forecasters say high winds and a dry air mass are to blame. Winds today are expected to be 15 to 20 miles an hour with gusts of 30 to 35. They'll be nearly as strong tomorrow as well. In the forecast, it will be partly cloudy skies tonight with those gusty winds we just told you about. Lows dropping to the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, still windy. Highs in the lower 50s. And Saturday, a mix of sun and clouds. Highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Big news today for parents of young kids. Moderna announced it has asked the Food and Drug Administration to authorize the first COVID-19 vaccine for babies and toddlers and other very young children. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. It has been so close and yet so far for parents of these very young kids. Is it actually here? Is a COVID-19 vaccine for really young kids on the horizon? Yeah, well, it looks like we're finally getting closer if the FDA agrees to authorize the vaccine, you know, and that would mean for the first time, kids younger than age five, in fact, babies as young as six months old would finally be eligible to get immunized against COVID-19, which would be huge for all those parents out there who've been anxiously waiting to protect their littlest kids. Here's Dr. Sean O'Leary. He's a pediatrician at Children's Hospital Colorado who advises the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm excited. You know, we've been waiting for this for a while now. We've been, you know, hoping for a vaccine for these younger kids for quite some time. So I think, you know, overall, this is great news. Especially now that so many people have stopped wearing masks and infections are creeping up again. 
Okay, so we hear the excitement from from a pediatrician there, but we've all learned by now that um, Moderna asking for authorization is one step of several that would need to transpire. What are the prospects right. for this vaccine getting authorized? Well, you know, Moderna says a study involving almost 7,000 kids clearly shows that a low-dose version of its adult vaccine does what it needs to do. It safely stimulates the immune system of little kids just enough to generate enough antibodies to protect them. Here's what Dr. Paul Burton, Moderna's chief medical officer, told me about this. The level of antibodies that we see clearly shows that we should have very good protection against severe disease and hospitalization, which is what obviously counts most. So overall, it's a very, very strong result, very reassuring result for parents and for physicians. Now, Moderna acknowledges that the vaccine looks like it's only 51% effective at preventing infections and mild illness for kids between the ages of six months and two years, and only 37% effective for those two through five. Hmm. So that's disappointing, but, you know, not surprising because it was tested after Omicron and it had already taken over, and we know the vaccines just don't work as well against Omicron. But it does look like this vaccine would do the most important thing, protect against serious illness. Rob, what about the when? Uh, when right. could this vaccine become available? Yeah, you know, that's the source of some tension right now. Moderna says the company is getting the FDA everything it needs to authorize the vaccine by the end of May. But NPR has learned that the FDA probably won't take this up until June because the agency says it needs to wait for all the data to come in and it'll take time to carefully review it. But any further delays would really disappoint many pediatricians and parents. Here's Fatima Khan. She's the mother of a four-year-old from San Francisco who's been lobbying for a vaccine for young kids. If the FDA holds back on reviewing Moderna's data, I think that would be outrageous. We have been waiting a very long time for our younger kids to, to get the same protection that everyone else has had during this pandemic. Now, the FDA says it will act as quickly as possible and not cut any corners. Here's how Dr. Peter Marks from the FDA put it at a congressional hearing this week. Simply making a vaccine available doesn't matter if parents don't get their kids vaccinated. So it's critically important that we have the proper evaluation so that parents will have trust in any vaccines that we authorize. That's such a key point, Rob, trust. How much of a demand will there be for this vaccine? What's your sense? Yeah, you know, there clearly are many parents who will rush out to vaccinate these youngest kids. But remember, most of the older kids who have been eligible for months still aren't vaccinated. And polling indicates that all the delays with this vaccine have heightened reservations among parents of these youngest kids. So, you know, it's unlikely most will be lining up at least right away at their pediatrician's office for the shots. Thank you, Rob. You're welcome anytime. And PR's Rob Stein. Trevor Reed, a U.S. citizen and former Marine who'd been imprisoned in Russia for 985 days, is back in the United States today. Russia released Reed in exchange for a pilot who was serving time in the U.S. on drug smuggling charges. We want to turn to a man who was left behind, another U.S. citizen and former Marine, Paul Whelan, who's serving a 16-year sentence of hard labor in Russia. Whelan was detained in a Moscow hotel in 2018 and was accused of spying. We're joined by Paul's twin brother, David. David, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. First of all, David, how are you and how is your family? Well, yesterday was a, a bittersweet day. It was a very hard day. And today we're sort of back to work. Uh, you deal with the events that take place and then you move on. Um, 
I think it was hard for my parents to learn that Paul wasn't going to be coming home and then having to perhaps not break the news to him, but have to be the ones who get the message, which is why was I left behind? And so you mentioned that you were in touch with your brother. Um, how How is he doing? He is probably as well as you could be in a Russian labor camp. Uh, they don't provide nutritional meals and they don't really uh, take too much uh, care of the prisoners. There's a lot of corruption and other abuse. So I think he does his best to stay out of people's uh, way. Uh, and uh, before the sanctions hit, we were able to get money into his prison account and on his phone card. So hopefully for the near future, he'll be able to be all right. What, what do you mean by that? What, what Can you explain what this card is and how that works? Prisoners in Russian prisons have like a prison bank account where family can deposit money so that the prisoner can buy things from the prison commissary. We have a process of transferring money to the State Department. The State Department transfers it so that it's available to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And then Moscow disperses money as needed into those two accounts. And so it, it's a, a thin pipeline uh, that allows us to support Paul. And if anything disrupts that, if the staff uh, in Moscow leave, if sanctions stop us from making those sorts of transfers, uh, it makes it much more difficult. Yesterday, NPR spoke with State Department spokesman Ned Price. He did not offer a lot of information about your brother's case. Have they been more open or, or provided more details to you and your family? No. And I, I think that that is not too much of a surprise to us. I think the communication that we've had from the Biden administration, certainly the last 15 months has been substantially more than we had in the first two years of Paul's detention. Hmm. But the it happens sporadically, and it happens tend, mostly at a lower level, the uh, care and feeding end of the uh, spectrum. So weekly calls with the U.S. Embassy staff in Moscow, regular interactions with the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs Office, right. but less so at the top and less so uh, to know about what sort of decisions are being taken or discounted, what options are available or uh, which ones aren't. For those listeners who don't know, can you remind us about the circumstances of Paul's detention in 2018? Uh, why was he in Russia and, and what happened? Yeah, it's a bit tragic. Uh, he had volunteered to go with a fellow Marine to help the Marine who was having a wedding in Moscow. He was going to the wedding and then he was going on to St. Petersburg to see some other friends and then he was coming home. And uh, the night of the wedding, before the wedding even started, he was entrapped by the security services by a, a friend uh, who he had had in Russia. Wow. And, uh, and he disappeared. And that's when we first learned about it. Wow. That, I mean, that just sounds so traumatic for you and your family. I mean, how... Has his time in prison since 2018, you know, affected your family financially? Well, uh, unfortunately, every family has to look at its resources right from the very start. And the, the first thing we realized that we might not be able to trust the government lawyers that had been given to Paul. He was assigned a Russian-speaking uh, lawyer only on the first day. So obviously not a lot of thought put into what Paul's defense would be since Paul doesn't speak Russian. Um, huh. But we also very quickly came to the realization that we couldn't afford for a private Russian lawyer. In essence, we had to make decisions about whether you know our parents would be able to retire or take their money out of their retirement to pay for these sorts of things. And we've decided to try and be a little bit uh, thrifty in that. Right. Um you know, you and your family have been fighting this fight for a few years now. How has the war and Russia's war in Ukraine impacted your efforts to try and get your brother released? It hasn't really impacted too many efforts. The U.S. and Russian relationship is in a terrible state, but it is still in a state. Uh, and I think Trevor Reed's release shows that there is something actually going on there. But the war itself, Paul is in a labor camp and it's become a little bit more difficult. There are fewer uh, options, for example, to use things like Western Union who have pulled out of Russia. Mm -hmm. But 
we the care and feeding flow seems to be continuing so long as that relationship still exists. Right. So you've noted that Russia has long wanted the release of Konstantin Yaroshenko, the Russian prisoner traded for Reed. Uh, do you know of any other Russian prisoners in U.S. custody who could be traded for your brother? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Paul has made it clear that that very first weekend before he was given consular access, uh, right after he was given a uh, an FSB-appointed lawyer, he was told that he was being arrested in order to be exchanged for Mr. Victor Boot, the merchant of death, and for Mr. Yaroshenko. And so it really has been the entirety of the time that he has been detained that those two names have come up repetitively from the Russian side, in Russian media, from Russian government officials, that those were two people they wanted returned. And then there's been a, a slightly changing cast of characters. At one point, it was also Roman Seleznev, who is the son of a Duma legislator. Um, so there are other people, but it's usually been those two. So Paul was actually told this by an FSB lawyer, uh, like upon his arrest, that, look, we're, we're basically arresting you because we want some Russian prisoners uh, released from the U.S., Absolutely. That's that's what he has relayed to us. And based on the fact that they charged him with espionage, which was probably the most ludicrous thing they could have charged him with, uh, and the whole mockery of justice that has gone on since then, uh, I don't think there's any reason to doubt. What's next for you and your family in your fight to get Paul home? Well, I guess we continue to do what we've done day to day in the same way that Paul, in order to survive over there, is going to have to look at one day at a time. Uh, I think that our family has to do the same. And hopefully those days don't accumulate too far. And I think that that's sort of where we are questioning a lot after uh, Trevor's release yesterday, which I'm so thrilled for. But it really puts into perspective, are there limitations to what the U.S. government can or is willing to do? What are those difficult decisions uh, against which uh, President Biden um, came up against? It's given us a lot of things that we need to be considering. That's David Whalen, the twin brother of Paul Whalen, who is imprisoned in Russia. David, thank you so much and good luck to you and your family. Thanks. It's been nice to be on. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars, coming up on All Things Considered, the Polish farmers near the border with Ukraine who have organized weekly shipments of protective equipment to soldiers on the front lines. That story and more coming up here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. BostonPops.org. And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. In business news, Boston-based Fidelity Investments is moving to add 12,000 jobs this year, including nearly 3,000 in New England. It's the third straight year of hiring and comes after the company added nearly 17,000 workers last year. It currently employs more than 57,000 workers worldwide. On Wall Street, stocks rose sharply today. The Dow was up 614 points, nearly 2% at 33,916. Nasdaq rose 382 points, more than 3% at 12,871. And the S&P 500 gained 103 points to end the day at 4,287. It's 419. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies overnight, lows dropping to the mid-30s with gusty winds at times. Increasing clouds tomorrow with highs in the lower 50s. Remember, learn more about how your food choices can help fight climate change and sign up for WBUR's newsletter, Cooked. Details at WBUR.org slash cooked. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The White House is asking Congress for $33 billion in aid for Ukraine. Much of that money would go towards replenishing Ukraine's weapons, something that Polish farmers are also trying to do. NPR's Joanna Kikisis has our story. Krzysztof Detz checks a tractor on the farm where he grows wheat, corn, and beets in the Polish village of Kojenice, just nine miles from the Ukrainian border. When the Russians bombed a Ukrainian military training center near the border last month, Detz felt the shocks as he walked on his land. He's got three young boys and he worries about nuclear war. This war has changed our lives and routines dramatically. The first thing we do every day is check the news and see what's happening on the front line. He wants to help Ukraine survive. And so do his friends Jan and Eva Toborovich, who run a dairy farm in a nearby village. The couple is housing several Ukrainian families on their farm. Farmers feel the weight of this war, Eva says, because we know what it's doing to food and security around the world. But there is a much more immediate need, helping Ukraine's soldiers who are running out of supplies. Eva San Mikowai says that's the main mission now. We can help them to be better organized on the battlefield. Maybe more people will survive. Across the border in Ukraine, Artur Harmidor was tackling the same question. He's from the western city of Lviv and is plugged into Ukraine's supply networks. Speaking by phone, Harmidor tells us that Ukrainian soldiers expect the war to last for months at least and are running out of equipment. The soldiers' texts are called to tell me what they need. Requests include basics, like ammunition or ski masks, and more serious items, like thermographic cameras and drones. Harmidar had struggled to source this equipment. It's very expensive and also hard to find. Back in Poland, Mikovai Toborowicz talked it over with his parents and Krzysztof Detz, the first farmer we met. That's immediately started calling suppliers. We reach out to larger farms and big companies, and they responded really positively. Some companies agreed to donate tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. 
This shows just how important it is for Poles that Ukrainians win this war. A few weeks ago, Mikovai loaded the first batch of donated equipment into his van and drove it to Lviv. Ukrainian drivers picked it up from there. For a week or so, Kshishtov Dets wondered what happened to the delivery. He talked to his sons, ages 7, 8, and 9, about the night goggles, the bulletproof vests, the helmets. The boys imagined this equipment was protecting warriors against a very bad dragon, which is what they call Russian President Vladimir Putin. The equipment reached a Ukrainian territorial defense unit in Sumy, a vulnerable northeastern Ukrainian city just 30 miles from the Russian border. Dets was thrilled to see photos of the soldiers holding up the equipment he helped secure. Hello. Hello. We reached Natalia, one of the soldiers in Sumy. She gives only one name. She says the night vision goggles have been especially helpful in spotting ambushes. If we get even one such thing, it helps save not only the citizens' lives, but also the lives of fighters. She says she hopes the farmers don't forget about them. And they have not. That says they're already planning their next delivery. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kozhenitsa, Poland. Video games can amuse or distract, sometimes inspire, which means they engage the brain with tasks. So some researchers are hoping video games could help treat cognitive disorders from depression and ADHD to mental decline from aging. Keller Gordon reported about this for NPR.org. Welcome, Keller. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Keller, you start by describing a video game developed at a lab at the University of Utah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this isn't a game you get on the App Store or PlayStation or anything like that. It's from a federally funded nonprofit lab that makes games dedicated to treating cognitive disorders, mostly those in aging brains. I spoke with Dr. Sarah Morimoto, who runs this program called Neurogrow. It doesn't exactly look like a normal video game. You've got a basic, colorful screen and... You might have to complete certain tasks, like watering a flower with a certain color watering can before time runs out. Hmm. It's got a pretty rudimentary design, but it challenges a patient's memory and reaction time. And it's not supposed to be fun, it's (laughs) therapy. But Dr. Morimoto thinks the results are promising. I definitely feel like the science has been greatly advanced by working with video game researchers and designers. So, Keller, that's the researcher. What do her patients say? What did you hear from them? Yeah, I spoke with Pete and Pam Stevens about their experience using the NeuroGirl program. Pam had suffered a stroke in 2014 and wasn't responding to medication. Her neurologist gave them a pretty grim prognosis. He, on two separate occasions over a two-year period, had said there was nothing we could do. Just take her home and be prepared. She's going to die. Jeez. Yeah, it's pretty rough, but they weren't ready to give up. They found out about Morimoto's program in 2018, and after a few neurogrow sessions, Pam would be exhausted, like she had just finished a workout. But it was helping. Hmm. Now, Pam didn't say much to me in our interview, but Pete says he started noticing improvements in her mental health. Before our interview, Pete mentioned that Pam was actually reading a book on cognitive behavioral therapy. Wow, that's a really good sign. So that's a government-funded project. Are private companies getting into video game therapy as well? Yeah, let me tell you about one of them. 
there is Achille Interactive Labs, a very different organization with very different funding. Mm -hmm. They developed a game called Endeavor RX. This looks more like a popular mobile game like Subway Surfers or a game that's actually, you know, supposed to be fun. Right. And the FDA actually gave Endeavor RX their blessing. They classified it as something that could be used to treat inattention in children with ADHD. But there are also critics. Some scientists call it a marketing ploy. They say patients who play the game will only really get better at playing games like it, like Mario Kart. Huh. Here's how Eddie Martucci, CEO of Achille, responded to that criticism. I think the reason there's skepticism is people have been burned by like marketing gimmicks, especially in digital health and especially in neuroscience and, and areas like ADHD. There's been a lot of snake oil and over time, skepticism has dramatically decreased as we continue to research and show data. So that makes sense. Uh, but where is this all going? Are we getting to the point where you will see video games prescribed by a doctor? Well, theoretically, the FDA has already allowed that for Endeavor RX. Huh. The company behind it got hundreds of millions of new capital in a merger. Dr. Morimoto's lab, again, out of university, is very different. They follow an academic path, and NeuroGrow is an experimental therapy that's still only available to a few patients. But they've got a lot of government funding, a $7.5 million grant. So watch this space. It's very likely to keep growing. We will continue to watch. That's Keller Gordon, who contributes to NPR's video game coverage. Thank you so much, Keller. Thank you. This is... NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars, just ahead on All Things Considered. Amid the sixth week of a citywide COVID lockdown in Shanghai, how residents of one housing complex are handling the matter. Also, the FDA's move to ban menthol cigarettes as a way to prevent younger people from smoking. That and more coming up here on WBUR. Forecast says partly cloudy tonight with gusty winds, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, still windy, highs in the low, lower 50s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And the ICA, with a place for me. Celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant, figurative paintings. ICABoston.org. You know, sometimes it's better to just let the audio speak for itself. Economics is actually the least socioeconomically diverse of any major academic discipline in the U.S. in terms of the parental education of people that get economics PhDs. So what do you do about that? I'm Kai Rizdal. We will try to figure it out next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is asking Congress for $33 billion in additional assistance to Ukraine amid the ongoing Russian invasion. NPR's Mara Eliasson reports the request is more than double the amount that lawmakers included in a broader spending package that was signed into law last month. 
about $20 billion of it is going to provide weapons to Ukraine, replenish U.S. armed stockpiles after those weapons are sent, and help other countries shift away from a dependence on Russian weapons. Uh, additionally, $8.5 billion of it is for economic assistance to the Ukrainian government. $3 billion of it is being requested for humanitarian and food security funding, including supporting refugees. That's NPR's Mara Liason reporting. Senate Democrats on Wednesday pledged to take swift and bipartisan action to approve another round of assistance. Lawmakers in Oklahoma have passed a near-total ban on abortion in the state after about six weeks of pregnancy. Catherine Sweeney of member station KOSU reports the legislation is scheduled to take effect immediately after the governor signs it. This bill is one of dozens that lawmakers have passed this year in an all-above approach to ban the procedure statewide. The law would apply to all abortions except ones performed to save the mother's life. Abortions would be banned as soon as cardiac activity could be detected. Like the law passed in Texas last year, it would rely on private citizens and civil lawsuits for enforcement, a mechanism that has been allowed to stand by federal courts. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Sweeney in Oklahoma City. Stocks closed higher on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 614 points, closing at 33,916. The Nasdaq Composite also traded higher, up 382. The S&P 500 rose 103 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The Massachusetts economy is off to a slow start this year after rapid growth at the end of 2021. New figures out today show the state's economy shrank at an annualized rate of 1% in the first quarter. Economists blame high inflation and ongoing problems with the supply chain. Northeastern University professor emeritus Alan Clayton Matthews points out the U.S. trade deficit was also a factor, but that is forecast to be short-lived. Now that inventories are lower, that could give a boost to growth next quarter. And economists expect positive growth next quarter. Local economists with the journal Mass Benchmarks project slow growth over the next six months. Clayton Matthews says the forecast depends on the success of the Federal Reserve to curb inflation without triggering a recession. A state representative from Worcester is apologizing after he was charged with driving while intoxicated. Police arrested 32-year-old David LaBeouf earlier this week after drivers reported his car operating erratically on I-93. He was taken into custody after failing several sobriety tests. LaBeouf tweeted today, he's struggled with addiction and is committed to getting treatment. He calls his actions an egregious lapse in judgment. A local labor group is remembering workers who've been killed on the job over the last year. The Mass Coalition for Occupational Safety held a memorial event today to give families of those killed the chance to share their stories. Executive Director Jody Sugarman-Brozan says her group is pushing the state to increase protections against retaliation for workers who report unsafe conditions. To give more power at the Attorney General's office for for workers to have a way of reporting and getting their concerns addressed without having to file a lawsuit, which is primarily the way that workers have to deal with um, the issue if they've been retaliated against. Sugarman Brozon says the state should also require companies to disclose their health and safety records to get public contracts. 62 workers died on the job in Massachusetts last year, up from 45 the year before. A local environmental group is suing the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, accusing it 
of violating the Clean Water Act. The Conservation Law Foundation says the MWRA exceeded the limits for cyanide, lead, and mercury in wastewater discharged into Boston Harbor and Massachusetts Bay. The foundation says the contaminants come from hospitals, manufacturers, and industrial facilities that are not properly treating the chemicals and says the MWRA failed to take required action. The MWRA says it's disappointed by the lawsuit and says it can only assume the accusations are based on a misunderstanding of how the program works. The Salem City Council will consider tonight what material the city should use to construct and repair sidewalks. City Councilor Ty Hapworth says his proposal would require brick sidewalks in certain areas and would require repairs to be made with the same material the sidewalk was made from. The change here is that we do specify that if you're in a local historic district, which we have some incredible historic districts here in Salem, that that material would be brick as it's, as it's appropriate for those neighborhoods. Hapworth says brick is more costly up front, but that maintenance costs are lower than other materials. In sports, Red Sox are underway against the Blue Jays in Toronto this hour, trailing one nothing in the top of the fifth inning. Bruins will be at home tonight against the Buffalo Sabres. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies overnight, lows dropping to the mid-30s with gusty winds, increasing clouds tomorrow, highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Rob Schmitz. For nine years, I lived in a giant apartment complex called The Summit with thousands of other people in the city of Shanghai. My family and I left China months before the pandemic, but I still stay in touch with some of my former neighbors through the group messaging platform WeChat, which is where I saw this. That's a government drone elsewhere in Shanghai warning people who were singing from their balconies. The message says, please comply with COVID restrictions. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Do not open the window or sing. One of the only ways, honestly, to survive this lockdown is to have to see it through some kind of humor. These get circulated and we almost laugh at them. Ha Chung was one of my neighbors. She and her husband, Nadav Davidai, and their two kids have had to maintain a healthy sense of humor lately as Shanghai approaches its sixth week of a citywide COVID lockdown. China still maintains a zero-COVID policy, which for Ha Nadav means they haven't been able to leave their apartment building since April 1st. Since then, the Summit Apartments WeChat group has taken on a new life as an information hub for food delivery and required COVID testing, as a place to complain together, but also to help each other out, and for whatever levity they can find. I asked both of them about that. Well, for me, it's been really a kind of lifeline. We had no connection to the outside world. And so this WeChat group, it was really nice because there were, you know, there are obviously some people that I knew there from before, but then there was, you know, all these other new neighbors that kind of came out and made it interesting and helped us through this time, like helping with the group buys and helping with just making sense of, you know, when the testing was happening, 
we, we even started a Friday night trivia group. <laughs> which was, you know, <laughs> which was quite nice. I think that happened about like two or three weeks into it. And, we've, and then we figured out, oh, my goodness, you know, this is, this is going to continue and we really need to do something social beyond just the chats. So there's these nice moments of kind of levity and community mixed in with what the heck is going on type of stuff. So we've been tested 10 days in a row. Today was the first day in 11 days we were not tested. And they bring in the medical teams, the doctors to do the testing, but the people to come call us, knock on our doors and get us downstairs and then check us off. All of those are residents. And one of those residents, he's wearing those Dabai suits, right? The like head yep. to toe. The uh, Tyvek suits. Full, full, but yeah. And, you know, he every day we'd see him and, and he was chatting us up. He's fully bilingual, uh, really kind of engaging. And, and he's doing this every day on top of his work. We never met this guy before in our lives. And then turns out he was one of the people in our quiz night, <laughs> that virtual <laughs> quiz night I mentioned. <laughs> and, and even then I didn't recognize him because he, you know, when we see him, he's like head to toe with hazmat. And the next day he saw us, he was like, oh, that was a great quiz. I was like, David, is that you? <laughs> and uh, that's how we got to know David. And, you know, I think once we get through all of this, we'd love to have dinner with him and, and other people that we've never met. I can kind of picture us going and hugging a whole bunch of neighbors that previously we'd never talked to just because we've all now gone through this together. Wow. Um, you have two young children. How have they handled this? Yeah, it's been, it's been tough for them. At first it was, you know, a 48-hour lockdown. And actually I have to credit a meme that was going around about how there would be four-day lockdown. And in the meme, it's uh, these people who are playing Uno. And if you play Uno before, you, you know that there's like these plus four cards, right? These plus four, plus four, plus <laughs> right. four cards. <laughs> yes. And so, and so there was a meme going around about, um, you know, how many days are you going to be in lockdown? And it starts with the government says four days. And then someone's holding the, the cards and it's, plus four, plus four, plus four. And so our oldest, who is nine years old, she had heard about this meme through her friends. And so she was joking about it. And that's actually, in the end, really helped her mentally get through to it because every time she asked, how many more days now? And we're on, uh, I don't even know, what day is it today? <laughs> we started <laughs> April 1st, the days are all blending. But yeah, so she, you know, she's getting through it because she's thinking about that Uno meme and saying plus four, plus four, plus four. In a video shared on the Summit WeChat group, workers in blue Tyvek suits began to erect metal barriers at the entrance to your tower, which is by far the largest tower in the complex because somebody tested positive the day before you were all able, all set, to be let out to wander the complex's courtyard for the first time. Let's listen to the response from your building as they were erecting these barriers. So this is the sound of dozens of people screaming from their windows in protest. And that protest actually worked. The workers took down the barrier. Tell me about that incident. Yeah, I think to kind of set up the mood of how we were feeling in the tower. The hard lockdown started April 1st, and on April 1st, we were announced that we had a case. And so we were good, and we had been following all the rules and had gotten tested and everything, and there had been a couple of other cases that popped up. And so by the time, you know, this came about, like the I think it was on a Thursday night or a Friday night, the day before, like you said, they had announced a new case, and it came out of the blue. And then when they brought the fencing in, 
that was for me like one of the lowest points so far in this lockdown for me is like they were going to fence us in and it was just all that pent up frustration inside of us. You know, we felt like they didn't have any compassion for us by erecting this fence in front of us. And so this is why we were screaming or at least why some of us were screaming. But, you know, thankfully they listened and then they, they took it away shortly after. You all have been locked in for five weeks now, going on six weeks. And we talked a a lot about some of the physical limitations to that. I want to talk mentally. What kind of impact has this had on folks there? You know, it's been tough for for us. And as Has said, we've had highs, we've had lows, and, you know, kind of keeping it together day in and day out without knowing where this is going and kind of getting the boulder rolled down the hill again and, and having to restart over and over and over kind of thing has been tough for us. But I can only imagine for those that are in other situations that are more difficult than ours. Some of these people that are in our building and in the same situation or same location as us, very different situation, are completely separated from their house, their families. There are those that have had medical issues come up. And, and some who have been sent to quarantine centers, right? Absolutely, yeah. One perspective that I think maybe people back in the U.S. don't get very much is they see, they see this, and this makes for horrible optics as we talked about, but we felt incredibly lucky to be in China from March 2020 when we came back from Singapore until a month ago. It was the best place to be in the yeah. world. Like, well, <laughs> There was no COVID there. <laughs> we lived normal lives to the point where it was the reverse. It was like we kind of felt bad about it in times because people were really struggling everywhere. And we were on vacations <laughs> in really nice <laughs> places. And our kids were in school from May and didn't miss a day of school. And so, I mean, the zero COVID policy was really beneficial to us. It was a real boon for us for a long time. And it feels very different now, obviously, but kind of on balance, I I don't know. Those are my former neighbors and friends, Ha Chong and Nadav Davidai, who are still in lockdown from their apartment in Shanghai. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, Rob. Nice to speak to you, Rob. You're listening to All Things Considered. The Food and Drug Administration is one step closer to ending the sale of menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars in the U.S. Today, the agency proposed banning the sale of all menthol tobacco products, and the Biden administration is signaling its strong support. Public health advocates say this will save lives, especially among black Americans. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us. Hey, Allison. Hi there, Mary Louise. Hey, so I don't smoke, but I have tried cigarettes, and I've tried menthol cigarettes, and um, the distinguishing thing is that they taste like mint. They taste good Mm. um, and not as harsh as tobacco. Is that what makes them so popular? That is definitely part of it. I mean, it's just easier to start smoking if cigarettes have a soothing, even pleasant taste, and it's harder to quit, too. Uh, Nearly 19 million people in the U.S. smoke menthol cigarettes, and anti-tobacco advocates say a ban would be the single most important action taken by the FDA in recent years to curb smoking and all the disease caused by it. Uh, Here's Erica Sward of the American Lung Association. Simply put, it's a big deal. It will save lives, especially in black and brown communities in the United States, and it will reduce youth smoking. It will also lead to fewer people being diagnosed uh, or getting lung disease, cancers, 
and heart disease. And advocates have really been pushing for action on menthol for years now. And to her point, Allison, that this will really save lives, especially in black and brown communities. Do we know why a, a disproportionately high number of black Americans seem to use menthol products? Well, marketing and advertising practices really help explain this. Uh, I spoke to Portia Reddick-White of the NAACP. She says the tobacco industry has targeted marketing in black communities going back to the 1960s. Uh, Her group wrote a letter last week urging the FDA to ban menthol cigarettes. The tobacco industry, over the years, they have been ruthless with their targeting. Uh, They actually uh, have targeted in many ways, advertising, uh, discounting prices that appeal, uh, sponsoring events, uh, actually giving money to uh, Black educational institutions and civic leaders. Now, the NAACP says it stopped accepting funds from the tobacco industry over two decades ago, but a lot of these practices have continued, and the group says the consistency of the tobacco industry efforts has harmed Black Americans. Hmm. Is the tobacco industry likely to challenge this proposed ban? Well, tobacco companies uh, definitely oppose the proposal, and it would not be a surprise at all if they challenge the rules in court. A spokesperson for the tobacco company Altria, that's a spinoff of Philip Morris, said in a statement that banning sales of menthol products would push them into unregulated criminal markets that she said don't allow for any regulations. But, you know, public health and anti-tobacco advocates push back. They say the evidence to show the harm of menthol cigarettes is pretty overwhelming. Uh, here's Dennis Hennigan of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. I believe that the science is so strong and the life-saving potential uh, is so well-established that these rules will be finalized and they will survive court challenge. The FDA will open the rules up for public comment for 60 days, Mary Louise, but advocates say it could be several years before a menthol ban is put in place, given opposition from the industry and the regulatory process. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. And PR's Allison Aubrey reporting. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the story of Miranda Ray, the local singer who will play at the Boston Calling Music Festival next month, part of our continuing series on up-and-coming artists called Sound On. That's coming up. Remember, coming to City Space tomorrow night, Boston Poet Laureate Portia Olaiwola MCs an evening of poetry readings from Boston's up-and-coming poets. Tickets at WBUR.org events. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies tonight with gusty winds and lows dropping to the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, still windy, highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston at 450. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Mindscape, featuring new works by choreographers William Forsyth and Yorma Ello, live May 5th to 15th, bostonballet.org. Native Plant Trust, welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, now open. The beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. NBU's Party School of Global Studies, offering a one-year accelerated master's in international relations. Learn more at bu.edu slash pardschool. 
It's an urban farm, it's an urban greenhouse, and this is an urban problem. Around New England, people are fighting climate change by eating and growing food sustainably. What we expect as a result of climate change is extreme precipitation. And as long as we route it, store it, save it, then it can turn into extreme food. So both of our neighbors get a lot of veggies from here. To learn what you can do, sign up for our newsletter, Cooked. Go to WBUR.org cooked. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Jack Lepiars in for Lisa Mullins. The Boston Calling Music Festival will be back this Memorial Day weekend after being canceled the last two years because of the COVID pandemic. One of the local performers who will take the stage is Boston neo-soul singer Miranda Ray. Three That's Kool-Aid, one of the many singles Ray released over the past year. The 27-year-old is used to performing in front of crowds, but the Boston Calling performance will be a milestone for her. She says she's finally becoming the artist she's meant to be. For our series on rising local musicians, Sound On, WBUR Arts Engagement producer Ariel Gray explains why Miranda Ray is one to watch. Miranda Ray has one of those voices that kind of just stops you in your tracks. You can tell that there's an immense power in her vocals, but she doesn't wield it all at once. Recently, she's been venturing into using her head voice, those light and floaty vocals that are really different from her usual, more powerful alto singing. This is Moonlight, a track Ray released during the pandemic. She sings almost entirely in a mixture of her head voice and falsetto, grounded by that deep bounce of the bass. Ray was born in Boston, but moved to Florida with her mom after elementary school. She's the daughter of a Haitian father and biracial mother, and she always felt like she straddled these multiple identities. Her lyrics ask some really pointed questions about identity, like the line, why do I have to be defined by the limits of society? To fully understand where Ray is today, we have to go back to her first EP called Defying Love. Ray was only 21 when the project dropped in 2016, and she hadn't taken any vocal lessons yet. Since then, she's been training like crazy. The track, Back to Me, was the first song that she'd actually ever written. She told me it's about post-heartbreak loneliness. Like, putting so much in somebody, and then you start losing yourself. And it's just like, how can I find a way to get back to me? How could I be? How could I be so naive? Someone like you, someone like you play me. My heart in two. I'm so lost without you. 
you can hear that vocal power that I was talking about really rippling beneath the surface here, but it hadn't fully emerged yet. Ray said that she was really struggling finding her power when she started her next project because she was in this toxic living situation that really made her doubt her music. That project was kind of hard because I was in a space where I felt like I couldn't sing. And I felt like I didn't have a voice, nor did I feel like anybody wanted to hear it. <laughs> so I started uh, whispering when I would sing. Like I would sing very, very low. And doing that for so many months, it kind of like made me afraid to sing out loud. started working with her producer, Don Beeman, for her second EP called Excuse My Baggage. They made a lot of different choices. They actually added in live instruments. And the warmth of the guitar, the bass, and the keys, they really allow Ray's voice to shine. She says that making this album really helped her work through a lot of those doubts that she had in the beginning. And it's so exciting to hear how her restrained, tenuous voice on her first project bloomed on her next one. She compares her growth to the metamorphosis of the butterfly. I felt like I was in a cocoon for like a long time. And sometimes when I'm in my music bag, like that's when I feel free and I feel like butterflies like embody freedom in the sense of like, they just go where they wanna go, they flow. Ray has continued that growth over the past year. My personal favorite from the singles that she's released is this one, Mama Says. But we just made, but you got something I like. Some kind of feeling that got me feeling so high. But there's something about you, woo woo. Got me won't explode you, woo woo. When we talked about her upcoming Boston Calling performance, we touched on that butterfly image again. She still feels like she's leaving her cocoon. But I have a feeling that once she fully emerges, her wings and her voice will take her to great heights. You can find photos and Arielle Gray's full profile of Miranda Ray, along with the rest of our Sound On series at WBUR.org. Funding for WBUR's arts and culture programming comes from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Being Moholy, Portraits as Resistance. Be inspired to simply be with the works of Zanella Moholy on view through May 8th. More at gardnermuseum.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. From Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. 
Plymouth gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lummelson Foundation. This is WBUR online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, why South Korea, the world's sixth largest arms exporter, has only provided non-lethal aid to Ukraine so far. That's coming up. Forecast says it'll be partly cloudy skies tonight with lows dropping to the mid-30s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, presenting Seasick. Science journalist Alana Mitchell's one-woman mission to find hope in the face of climate change, May 11th to 22nd at the Paramount. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden calls on Congress to approve $33 billion in aid to Ukraine, a spending package larger than most countries' entire defense budget. It's Thursday, April 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the ask from the president, which indicates the U.S. is preparing to support Ukraine through a lengthy war with Russia. Also this hour, the president of Georgia on the continued threat her country faces from Russia. At this time, I think it's very important that the support of the United States is outspoken to both our countries. And why cutting carbon emissions may not be enough to avert the worst effects of climate change and how scientists are trying to vacuum carbon out of the air. It's 501 First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A senior U.S. defense official says Russian troops are making slow, uneven, and incremental progress in eastern Ukraine. As NPR's Greg Myrie explains, the Russians are continuing to add forces for an offensive in the Donbass region. The U.S. official says the Russians are meeting strong resistance from Ukrainian forces, describing the daily fighting as lots of back and forth with no major changes in the front lines. Russia is now focused on eastern Ukraine and is trying to address logistical problems that have included shortages of food, fuel, and replacement ammunition for its troops. Also, with Russia now controlling most of the coastal city of Mariupol, some Russian forces are now heading further inland. Still, a sizable Russian contingent remains in the city, and Russia continues airstrikes against Ukrainian fighters holed up in a huge steel factory. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is calling on Congress to approve another $33 billion in additional aid to help Ukraine in its efforts to repel Russia's invasion. That money is expected to last for about five months and would significantly boost efforts to help Kyiv as the war against Russia continues to intensify. Proposal includes more than $20 billion in military assistance for Ukraine. 
Vaccine maker Moderna is asking the FDA for emergency use authorization for its COVID-19 vaccine in young children, six months to six years. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports it's now up to the Food and Drug Administration to review the data. The company says two doses of vaccine led to a strong immune response in young children. The vaccine was about 51 percent effective in preventing infection in babies six months old up through two years and 37 percent effective in kids two up to six years old. This is lower than previous trials, but Moderna's chief medical officer, Paul Burton, says much of their data was collected during the Omicron wave when there was a drop in vaccine effectiveness overall. I think the levels of antibody that we see are very reassuring. They should provide good protection. Protection against serious illness and hospitalization, he says. FDA is expected to begin the review in the coming weeks. Allison Aubrey. NPR News. The economy contracted in the first three months of the year. That's according to new data from the Commerce Department. As NPR's David Gurra reports, GDP decreased at an annual rate of 1.4 percent amid concerns about inflation and the war in Ukraine. The slowdown is in stark contrast to GDP at the end of 2021, when the U.S. economy expanded by 6.9 percent. The Commerce Department specifically notes the effect the Omicron variant had on the growth numbers. That uncertainty will persist as the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates. NPR's David Gura, despite weaker-than-expected growth in the first quarter, Wall Street on something of a tear today. The Dow is up 614 points. The Nasdaq rose 382 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The man arrested in Alabama in connection with a three-decade-old murder in Lawrence has agreed to return to Massachusetts. Marvin McClendon Jr. will face murder charges for the 1988 killing of 11-year-old Melissa Trembley. The girl was found stabbed to death in an old railway yard. The MBTA is reporting more people on the commuter rail. General Manager Steve Poftak says commuter rail ridership is strong after after dropping precipitously during the pandemic. Not only has it recovered from the Omicron trough, but it has advanced beyond what it was carrying in November of 2021 and early December of 2021. We're actually uh, significantly above that. Poftak tells the T's board of directors subway ridership is up 50 percent from the Omicron surge. MBTA buses are also carrying more passengers than during the surge earlier this year. Fewer restaurants in Boston's North End are seeking to offer outdoor dining this year. Mayor's office says 67 restaurants have applied so far. That's down 10 from last year. And it comes amid a new $7,500 fee for North End restaurants that want to offer the outdoor option. The city's granted more than 20 restaurants a hardship waiver that lowers that fee. The Boston City Council's approved a resolution that urges the city to recognize the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Fitr as a municipal holiday starting next year. The day marks the end of Ramadan, a month of fasting, prayer, reflection, and community for Muslims. Councillor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson is Boston's first Muslim city councillor. She hopes the resolution makes a difference. Educating people and dispelling Islamophobic stereotypes. Um, now it creates, you know, it opens doors to conversations about what is Islam? What is, what is, what does it mean to be a Muslim? The decision on the holiday now lies with the mayor. Sports Red Sox are underway against the Blue Jays in Toronto. They trail one nothing in the middle of the six. Bruins tonight will be at home against the Buffalo Sabres. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies tonight. Gusty winds, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. 
This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Among the dignitaries and diplomats, all the big wigs who gathered beneath the stained glass of the National Cathedral for Madeleine Albright's funeral here in Washington this week was the president of Georgia, Salome Zorbishvili. She leads what is a small country in the southeastern corner of Europe, a country that shares a border with Russia and has a history of being invaded by its far bigger neighbor. Now, I had met Zorbishvili in her capital last month. She sat for an interview with us in her offices at the presidential palace in Tbilisi, and she was outspoken both on events in her country and in nearby Ukraine. She's also a champion of women's rights, of female leaders, on the international stage. So we have invited her back, President Zorbishvili. Welcome to Washington. I am glad to speak with you again. Thank you. I'm also very glad to speak with you. Now, I know you're here um, for a number of reasons, but primarily um, because of Madeleine Albright's funeral. And I, I wish she were here to join us in talking about strong female leaders because she certainly was one. Um, did you know her? Yes, I did. Uh, I did know her in my previous uh, functions. Uh, and she was um, extremely uh, promoting the women leadership the way we understand it. Uh, she was also um, very much outspoken about the rights of the, those countries uh, that were formerly uh, in the Soviet Union uh, to have and defend their, their independence. So we had many things. And as a refugee that had left the country, a totalitarian country. She also understands very well what uh, uh, human rights uh, and the nation's rights uh, mean. So there were very many common points. Well, and uh, what do you think the role of women leaders in conflict is? I mean, what do you think they bring to the table that that is different? I think that they bring a different perspective. Uh, and in the 21st century, uh, to see a country that is invading another one, is something that to me looks very anachronic uh, and uh, I think that women have a more maybe uh, realistic view of uh, uh, what the world uh, can do uh, in solving uh, conflicts mm. uh, and post-conflict situations which also is a very important issue. Yeah. I guess we could note that there have been past strong female leaders of Russia who've also invaded Catherine the Great which would come to many Ukrainians minds. Mm. <laughs> That's true. Uh, what is important is not the fact of being a female leader. Uh, it's whether uh, we bring to the different issues that we're dealing with a different attitude. And that was certainly not the case of uh, Catherine the Great or of some of the past uh, women leaders. Well, speaking of female leaders, uh, you held meetings today on Capitol Hill, including with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Another woman leader, yes. Indeed. Um, what is it you want American lawmakers, Pelosi and others, to know about your country, about its place in the world right now? Well, I, I have a very simple message uh, here in Washington, uh, which is that uh, we uh, understand and we are in full solidarity with Ukraine. We want the maximum support of the United States for Ukraine because Ukraine should win. Uh, and uh, I am glad to be here today in Washington, the day when 
President Biden announces these $33 billion support to Ukraine, and uh, I think that it's the very uh, right uh, and uh, timely decision. Uh, but what I want to convey is that it's important that while dealing with uh, uh, the Ukraine issue, while helping Ukraine to win, it's important not to forget two other countries, Moldova and uh, Georgia, that are the two other associate countries to the European Union, that are there uh, at very uh, sensitive places, one in the Caucasus, the other one close to the uh, Ukraine uh, war region, uh, and that those two countries are the two countries that are not protected uh, by either the NATO Article 5 or by the European Union direct solidarity, at least as yet, uh, so at this time, I think it's very important that the support of the United States is outspoken to uh, both our countries. Uh, Moldova has, and I just talked to Maya Sandu a few uh, hours before. Uh, had the their female president with... of Moldova, your counterpart there. Mm -hmm. Yes, we need our partners to be outspoken in their support to uh, our positions. We are not at war. We do not intend uh, to be at war, but we need uh, to be on the map. One of the ways that war in Ukraine is already impacting your country is um, refugees. Georgia is hosting tens of thousands of refugees and more coming every day. Uh, many of them women, the majority of them women. What are you doing to meet their needs? We are uh, offering them everything from um, uh, hosting them to uh, schooling of the children, to uh, medical facilities. And on top of that, they are very well received because we have these uh, old cultural uh, ties. So they are, I think, feeling uh, as much as home as possible. And we want to make them feel as much as home as possible. Yeah. Last thing, President Zwerbishvili, so many of the predictions for this war have turned out wrong, including the prediction that Russia would, would win and win really easily and fast. Um, what are you watching for as we are now, sadly, uh, into the third month of this war? Uh, I'm watching the, the tragedy of the war, but at the same time, the fact that it has really changed uh, all the calculus that have been made by everyone, uh, including by uh, the Russian leadership, uh, that they would win easily. Then now there is a second stage where they thought that they could take over the eastern side at least easily, and that's not happening. Uh, so all their predictions uh, have been wrong. Uh, including on the fact that the, the West would be disunited uh, and nobody is disunited uh, and everybody is doing everything that they can. And I think that that's the recipe for what I hope will happen is a Ukrainian victory. Salome Zurbishvili, she is president of Georgia. She's here in Washington this week. Madam President, good to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much. One year ago today, FBI agents showed up at Rudy Giuliani's Manhattan apartment with a search warrant, then took computers and cell phones from both his home and his office. Giuliani is not only a former mayor of New York City, he was also a lawyer and for former President Trump. NPR's Ilya Meritz is here to, take, to catch us up with this high-profile investigation. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Rudy Giuliani has not been charged with any crime, so tell us what is the potential crime here. 
Prosecutors are looking at possible violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. This is a law that says anyone lobbying the U.S. government on behalf of a foreign government or foreign interests has to report that work. Rudy Giuliani never registered for his activities in Ukraine in 2018 and 2019. But as we know from news reporting and also sworn testimony at President Trump's first impeachment, Giuliani was very active in Ukraine, working to gather information and then make damaging claims about Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Mm -hmm. We know he was in close contact with several current and former officials in the Ukrainian government as he did this. And this appears to be the activity prosecutors have been focused on. And in terms of Giuliani lobbying the U.S. government, what do we know about that? Well, we know he was in direct contact both with the St Department of State and the Department of Justice at around this time, feeding them his Ukraine materials. He was hmm. sending so much stuff to the Trump Justice Department, uh, it went so far as to set up an intake process just for him. Now, Giuliani has always insisted he followed the law and did nothing wrong. But if we think about it, this is kind of a dicey situation. In 2018, Giuliani becomes personal lawyer to the president, Donald right. Trump. He's also traveling overseas a lot to Ukraine and other places. Foreign officials know he has access to the president. He's the president's lawyer, after all. And he does this while maintaining a long list of other clients around the world who are not the president. Huh. So you've mentioned Ukraine a few times. What other details do we have about what Giuliani was doing in Ukraine on Trump's behalf? If we think about this kind of big picture, 2019, that's the year Trump was impeached, but only a few months earlier, uh, he had asked Ukraine's newly elected president, Volodymyr Zelensky, someone we all know very well now, right. to do us a favor. And when Zelensky didn't announce investigations of the Bidens, Trump froze military aid to Ukraine. Trump was acquitted in his Senate trial, but that year prosecutors began investigating Giuliani for his Ukraine activities. Uh, which were really a prime driver of the pressure campaign. And according to filings from Giuliani's own lawyer, investigators are specifically interested in his actions around the then ambassador in Kyiv, Marie Ivanovich. And she testified at Trump's first impeachment. How does she fit into this? Yeah, her testimony was really memorable for her composure, as she described being the target of this smear campaign by Giuliani, saying, basically saying she was corrupt. I do not understand Mr. Giuliani's motives for attacking me, nor can I offer an opinion on whether he believed the allegations he spread about me. Clearly, no one at the State Department did. In fact, Yovanovitch, I have to say, was known as an anti-corruption leader in Ukraine, but Giuliani's campaign against her did appear to succeed. She was removed from her post without warning, recalled to Washington, and Giuliani has admitted in an interview that he, quote, needed Yovanovitch out of the way why that was is probably something of great interest to investigators. So briefly, Ilio, here we have a year after the FBI search of Giuliani. Is 12 months a long time to run an investigation without seeking an indictment? If you want a yardstick, uh, the last time a personal attorney for President Trump was searched by the FBI was Michael Cohen back right. in April of 2018. It took just four months to get a guilty plea from him for tax evasion and campaign finance crimes. This probe is clearly moving a lot slower. It's very complicated. Uh, the war in Ukraine may also play some role in slowing things down. We don't really know. But what legal experts tell me is this is not an unusually long time. They want to get this bulletproof. That's NPR's Ilya Maritz. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app.
Coming up on All Things Considered, the deal between China and the Solomon Islands, how it could expand Chinese naval power and why that has the U.S. and Australia on edge. Coming up here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. And Worcester Polytechnic Institute, whose research approach is like nowhere else, meaning their impact solves problems in ways others don't. WPI.edu slash future. In business news, Walgreens is moving to open 10 primary care clinics at its locations in Massachusetts over the next year, starting next month in Quincy. The Illinois-based company expects the move to employ more than 350 people full-time. It has already opened dozens of similar clinics in multiple other states. On Wall Street, stocks rose sharply today. The Dow was up 614 points at 33,916. The Nasdaq rose 382 points, more than 3%, to 12,871. And the S&P 500 gained 103 points to end the day at 4,287. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Forecast says partly cloudy skies tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-30s with gusty winds at times. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Eighty years ago, American and Japanese forces fought an epic battle at Guadalcanal in the South Pacific, a battle to gain control of the Solomon Islands. Today, the islands are once again a focus of international concern, this time over fears of China getting a toehold there. NPR's China Affairs correspondent John Ruich reports. Last week, China and the Solomon Islands announced that they'd signed a security cooperation agreement. According to Beijing, it's a perfectly normal thing for two sovereign independent nations to do. Here's Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin. China's Solomon Islands security cooperation is open, transparent, and inclusive. It does not target any third party. Details of the agreement have not been made public, but a draft was leaked last month, and it set off alarm bells in Australia and the United States. If the final version is unchanged, China will be able to deploy police or soldiers to the Solomon Islands for training and to help maintain order. It could also make naval ship visits. Despite denials from Beijing and Honiara, there's concern that China could eventually even open a naval base there. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said that would cross a red line. And senior U.S. officials visited the Solomon Islands to explain Washington's stance. Assistant Secretary of State Daniel Kreitenbrink was one of them. 
We told the Solomon Islands leadership that the United States would respond if steps were taken to establish a de facto permanent military presence, power projection capabilities, or a military installation in the Solomon Islands. China has been cultivating relations with the Solomons and other Pacific Island nations in recent years, quietly converting economic clout into diplomatic cachet. Its navy's been growing rapidly, too, giving rise to the perception that America's far bigger footprint in the Pacific is under threat. Western countries have had dominance in the region for a long time, particularly in the post-Second World War period. Tarsisius Kabutalaka is a political scientist at the University of Hawaii. And so China's increasing influence, and and its assertive influence in the region, uh, means that it's challenging that dominance. And that's a big deal, according to Anne-Marie Brady, a professor of political science at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Even without a military base in the Solomons, an established Chinese presence there, with the government's blessing, will change the dynamic in the region. It has a number of impacts. It will have a chilling effect across the Pacific. It puts Australia at risk. You know, remember the Cuba Missile Crisis? It will give China a perch near key shipping lanes and right in between the U.S. and its allies. It could enable China to cut off Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Island states uh, from the U.S. and um, vice versa and could have a um, major impact on the Indo-Pacific strategy of the U.S. But there's a potential catch. Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare is behind the security deal and has pushed for better relations with China. He cut ties with Taiwan in 2019. That proved unpopular and sparked violent protests in November. Graham Smith is a fellow at the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs. He says there's an election coming up in the Solomons soon. And Sogavari's security deal with China will loom large. Politically, will it play well for him is really hard to say. I mean, no, this is a fun fact, no Solomon Islands prime minister has gone to an election and come back as the prime minister. But whether or not he or the deal survive, China's presence in the region is likely to keep growing. John Ruich, NPR News. California is considering creating safe spaces for people to use illegal drugs. These so-called safe consumption sites are an effort to save lives as overdoses skyrocket. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED explains. When Gary McCoy was 18 years old, he overdosed on heroin alone in a gas station bathroom. I immediately went back to my dealer's house from the hospital and bought everything that she had because it was the best heroin I had ever done. At the time, he was grappling with his sexuality in a conservative town in Virginia. I wasn't quite in the closet, but I wasn't really open about the fact that I was gay. He spent the next decade high, homeless, and near the brink. At 24, McCoy learned he was HIV positive. He was staying in a cheap hotel in San Francisco. I weighed 110 pounds, psoriasis all over my body, injecting every day couch surfing when I could, trading sex for drugs or a place to sleep. When he didn't have anywhere else to go, he'd get high inside the bathroom stall at a public library. I think if I had a place to go to where I could safely use, where people could see that I needed medical assistance, I think it would have avoided a lot of trauma. Just last year, more than 100,000 people died of an overdose in the U.S., which is why California lawmakers are debating whether to sanction safe consumption or safe injection sites. These facilities where people bring their own drugs look kind of like a hair salon with lots of mirrors and sterile supplies, 
people are going to a booth or somebody there who is helping them. Alex Crowell is an epidemiologist for the nonprofit research group RTI International. He's studied sites in more than a dozen countries. And then you have a second room where people can chill out, as they say, like a chill-out room or a place where they can be after they have used drugs. These facilities range from converted RVs to warehouses, always stocked with naloxone to reverse overdoses. There have been probably tens of millions of injections people have done in these sites over the last 35 years, and no one's ever died of an overdose at one of these sites. You can call it what you want to call it. It's an open drug scene. Anne-Marie Schubert is the district attorney in Sacramento County. The fact that we're considering allowing our government to essentially aid and abet the illicit use of drugs that are killing our citizens might find shocking. Schubert says providing a haven for drug use sends the message they are safe. She's pushing for something else. We need to get people to the point where they get treatment, even if they don't want it. It doesn't mean you throw them in jail, but you've got to have court order treatment. She says current law does not allow judges to order nearly enough people to get help. The last time safe consumption was on the table in California, a bill made it all the way to Governor Jerry Brown's desk in 2018. He, a Democrat, vetoed it. Now another Democrat, State Senator Scott Weiner, is trying again. What we want to do is for people who are already using, that instead of having them use on the sidewalk when your kid is walking by, to give them a place where they can go inside so if they do overdose, they don't die. Weiner's bill would pilot sites in San Francisco, Oakland, and Los Angeles. It has passed the Senate. Now it's in the state assembly. A recent cost-benefit analysis done in San Francisco shows that every dollar the city spends on safe consumption would save $2.33. Our hospitals, our emergency rooms, our fire department, our ambulances are all spending huge resources on people who are using on our streets. Because Wiener says they overdose and end up in jail. Gary McCoy was one of those frequent flyers. Now that he's in recovery, he's a huge advocate for safe consumption sites. I don't know if I would have stopped using sooner, but I certainly would have been in, in much better hands. McCoy finally limped into treatment when his drug dealer nudged him to go. Today, when he strolls through San Francisco, he always chats with people getting high on the streets. He lets them know there's help available. That's the real service outreach workers at safe consumption sites could provide. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg in San Francisco. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the recent elections in Slovenia that ousted the country's prime minister and how they reflect changing European politics, also trying to develop better ways to suck carbon out of the atmosphere to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Remember, learn more about how your food choices can help fight climate change and sign up for WBUR's newsletter, Cooked, the search for sustainable eats. Details at WBUR.org cooked. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies tonight with gusty winds and lows dropping to the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow and still windy with highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EF Gap Year, an international gap program that helps students see the world, discover their passions, and gain important life skills. More at efgapyear.com. An effort to protect a species in Texas is affecting an industry. It's been taking a big toll on me, actually. Uh, I've, I started this right out of high school. So, I mean, this is all I've ever done. How can fishermen keep working with public oyster reefs closed? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is urging Congress to pass an additional $33 billion in assistance to Ukraine as tensions remain high between Western allies and Russia. Speaking from the White House today, Biden said the cost of the war isn't cheap, but caving to Russian aggression would be even more costly in the long run. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country or... We stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. The funding request includes over $20 billion for weapons, ammunition, and other military assistance, as well as economic and humanitarian aid. The measure, which would contribute to Ukraine's war efforts through September, is more than double the amount authorized by Congress so far. The governor of Georgia has signed a series of controversial education bills. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE reports Georgia is the latest state to approve sweeping conservative classroom priorities ahead of the midterm elections. Flanked by teachers and kids, Governor Brian Kemp signed new restrictions on how teachers talk about race, a measure making it easier for parents to complain about books in school libraries, and a bill that opens the door to prohibiting transgender kids from playing on the sports team that matches their gender identity. We weren't elected by the people of this state to shy away from doing what some may call controversial. Because the bills we are signing into law today are about doing the right thing. Republicans hope emphasizing education motivates their base for next month's primary and attracts suburban parents this fall when Democrat Stacey Abrams is on the ballot. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 614 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Moderna is asking the Food and Drug Administration to authorize a COVID vaccine for children younger than age five. The Cambridge company says its low-dose vaccine is safe for kids as young as six months old. Moderna's chief medical officer, Dr. Paul Burton, is asking the FDA to move quickly. I think there is an important unmet medical need here with these youngest kids. They don't have any other vaccine. They don't have any other treatments. I think the FDA recognize that they might indeed prioritize this application. Moderna says the pediatric vaccine appears to be 51% effective for children six months to less than two years old and 37% effective for those ages two to less than six years. The MBTA is moving to add 150 jobs to improve safety. The money for the new safety workers is included in the T's next draft budget, which includes an 8% increase in spending and no fare hikes or service cuts. A final vote on the budget is expected later this spring. Meantime, T General Manager Steve Poftak says the agency has completed inspections of all trolley cars similar to the one that dragged a passenger to his death this month. 
if it is something that we need to pause and take note of, and also ensure that we as an organization are doing everything we can to keep our customers and our employees safe. Federal investigators have also inspected the Red Line train car door that trapped Robinson Lallin at the Broadway station. Leaders in the state Senate are asking senators to wear masks again. It comes after two state employees who were in the state house last week tested positive for COVID-19. Senators have the option to participate in sessions remotely. Massachusetts gaming regulators say they are not happy with the slow pace at which the state's two casinos are reopening poker tables. It's been nearly a year since regulators lifted pandemic restrictions and gave Encore Boston Harbor and MGM Springfield the go-ahead to fully reopen poker. Both have fewer tables open now with shorter hours than before the pandemic. State Gaming Commission is expected to address the issue with the casinos in the next few months. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. In sports, Red Sox are underway against the Blue Jays in Toronto. They trail one nothing in the bottom of the eighth inning. Bruins tonight will be at home against the Buffalo Sabres. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies overnight, lows dropping to the mid-30s with gusty winds at times. Increasing clouds tomorrow, highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Much of the world's attention was on France last weekend, where Emmanuel Macron's re-election dominated headlines. But in the tiny alpine eastern European country of Slovenia, the party of Prime Minister Janis Janša, a right-wing populist who was an outspoken supporter of former U.S. President Donald Trump, lost the national election to the environmentally focused party of Robert Golab. He is now set to become prime minister. Here to talk about what this might mean for Europe is Judy Dempsey, senior fellow at Carnegie Europe. Thanks for joining us, Judy. Thank you very much for having me. This was a big defeat for a three-term prime minister. What about Jansha were Slovenian voters rejecting? Slovenian voters had enough. They had enough of the kind of creeping populism, a kind of creeping authoritarianism that used the democratic system to kind of consolidate Jansha's power. They got fed up of the corruption. They got fed up of trampling on the media. And they've had enough of this this political figure. They want to change. So, Judy, can you tell us what kind of mark has Janis Janša left on Slovenia? The mark he's left is twofold. One is the ability of a leader and his party to actually erode democratic values. And secondly, the mark he's left is one of disappointment by Slovenia and the EU's eastern neighbors, 
like Ukraine, like Georgia, um, poor Belarus, who have looked to the European Union countries as models of reform, of democracy and of accountability. And these very issues are the ones that Yansha has eroded. And now hopefully they're going to be overturned with the new government in place. There was 70 percent voter turnout for this election, one of the highest in the country's history. And they delivered what to many was a surprise result. Why was this result so surprising, do you think? The result was surprising because Robert Golub is a new is a new face. He's the head of the Freedom Party. He he set up. A, he comes from the Green Movement. He set up this party only last January. He's a former company manager. He was a new face. He spoke plainly, quite charismatic. Didn't hold out any promises. Didn't make any threats. He was just saying we need a new beginning, and. This 70% was phenomenal. It's very gratifying. And the voters went for him. And they, they just decided that not only did they have enough of Janssen, but this is very, very important to understand political dynamics in other parts of Europe. No matter what the European Union does, it's people power that matters on the national level. And of course, Robert Golub was the opposition candidate for prime minister. And he, of course, he will now be prime minister. What can we expect from him? Um, practical politics, uh, rolling back uh, the kind of efforts that Janssen did to impose a kind of populist authoritarian structure on Slovenia, becoming a much more positive player inside the European Union and in NATO, and actually distancing Slovenia from the likes of the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and other populist leaders. Above all, size matters and small countries do have a say. They do have voting rights inside the European Union. And I think what Golly wants to say, to tell his EU interlocutors, we're back. We want to be constructive and we want to actually restore or repair the damage done to Slovenia's democracy. That was Judy Dempsey, Senior Fellow at Carnegie Europe. Thanks a lot for joining us, Judy. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Scientists from around the world released a major report this month on how to stop climate change. For the first time, they found that getting rid of fossil fuels may not be enough. Carbon emissions may also need to be vacuumed out of the air. The idea is controversial. Here to explain why is Lauren Summer from our climate team. Hey there, Lauren. Hey, Mary Louise. Um, start with the why. Why do scientists think this is going to be necessary to vacuum or soak up carbon emissions? It's because global emissions need to fall really fast. Basically, the world needs to get to net zero emissions by mid-century. You know, that's to avoid things like extreme sea level rise and much more dangerous heat waves and storms. But some sources of emissions are trickier than others to get rid of. Like farming, for example, it releases emissions from using fertilizer and disturbing the soil. And by mid-century, you know, a technology for carbon-free airplanes and ships may not be widespread yet. I see. Okay, so because those sources of emissions aren't likely to be eliminated or in the near term, they need to find a new way to pull them out of the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. Because you can kind of think of the atmosphere like a bathtub. That's how um, Catherine Calvin, senior climate advisor at NASA, describes it. The bathtub is already too full and adding more emissions is like leaving the faucet on. 
if you want to stop the water level from going up, you either need to turn off the faucet or scoop out as much water as you put in. The same is true of, of climate. If you want to stop temperature from rising, you either need to stop carbon dioxide going into the system or scoop out as much as you put in. Okay, so scoop out, vacuum out. How exactly would this work? How do you do it? Yeah, there are a few ways. Um, we're already surrounded by really powerful carbon sponges, and that's plants. You know, restoring forests and wetlands and mangroves can help soak up a lot of carbon. But the, the trick is you have to protect those ecosystems so the carbon dioxide stays locked in there. And then another way relies on new technology to create giant vacuums, basically. There are these huge machines that suck in air and filter out the carbon dioxide so it can be stored underground in geologic formations. That sounds like a huge project and also a really expensive project. How feasible is that, these giant vacuums? Yes, it's still unproven, so that means it's expensive and it also needs a lot of energy. And then some climate activists also worry that, you know, focusing on that technology, on carbon removal, distracts from the need to cut back on fossil fuel emissions now. It's kind of like a get out of jail free card for climate change. That's how uh, Genevieve Gunther, the founder of the climate advocacy group and Climate Silence, describes it. This is influencing many industrial countries to just sort of, you know, kick the can down the road and make it seem as if we don't need to act urgently and unequivocally right now, because later there will be this technology. Hmm. So Lauren, given all these issues, do these carbon vacuums sounds like they will ever be the a central strategy, a main strategy to fight climate change? Yeah, probably not the main strategy. You know, the major roadmap that just came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found that this removal technology will be a small piece of the puzzle. The most crucial thing is to rapidly reduce emissions by getting off coal and natural gas and switching to renewable energy like solar and wind. And it's kind of gotten to the point, though, that time is running so short, you know, tackling climate change requires every strategy in the book. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks. That's Lauren Summer from NPR's climate team. The 1918 flu pandemic put the U.S. on notice. Public health needed to be a national priority. And that public health reform came about with a new law in the 1940s. On NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This, we dig into how that is tying the CDC's hands today. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In its quest for weapons to fight off Russian forces, Ukraine has recently turned to the world's sixth largest arms exporter, South Korea. But so far, Seoul has only agreed to provide non-lethal aid. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, South Korea's relations with the powers that surround it have put it in a dilemma. Earlier this month, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a virtual and quite specific appeal to South Korea's parliament. You have something that can be indispensable for us, he said. Armored vehicles, anti-aircraft, anti-tank and anti-ship weapons. Zelensky noted that South Korea also suffered an invasion by North Korea during the Korean War. Kim Jong-dae, a former defense official and visiting professor at Yonsei University's Institute for North Korean Studies, says that this historical parallel resonates with South Koreans. 
And besides, he says, South Korea's chief ally has urged it to sell Ukraine weapons. I personally confirm through the South Korean Defense Ministry that the U.S. acting ambassador has made the request to our government. Ukraine is especially interested in purchasing South Korea's Chongong surface-to-air missiles. They're made by a company owned by the same family which owns LG Corporation, South Korea's fourth-largest conglomerate. But Kim says South Korea doesn't have stockpiles of those missiles to sell Ukraine, so they'd have to come off the front lines where they're arrayed against North Korea. Kim Jong-dae explains that there's an added complication. LG development homegrown weapons with weapons technology transferred from Russia In that sense, Russia has been the company's partner for the past 20 years. In other words, Ukraine wants to use South Korean missiles developed with help from Russia to kill Russians. Chon Inbom is a retired South Korean Army lieutenant general. He says that Seoul's chief concern is this. If we provide lethal weaponry to a country that is in conflict with Russia and Russia decides to provide technology to North Korea that would affect the delicate balance that is created between these three countries. For example, Kim Jong-dae points out, North Korea could use some help figuring out how to deliver warheads from an intercontinental ballistic missile onto their targets. North Korea has succeeded in putting missiles in orbit, but it doesn't have re-entry technology yet. But that can be solved if Russia sends just five of its engineers. Kim notes reports that Russia has asked North Korea for ammunition and missiles. Russia has denied those reports, but Kim says such a thing is not inconceivable. Just as Ukraine is asking South Korea for military support, Russia can ask North Korea for help. The probability is about the same. Kim says South Korea's dilemma is a bit like those faced by India and Israel, both of which have refrained from sanctioning Moscow. India relies on Russian weaponry in its confrontation with Pakistan, while Israel fears Russia could give more support to Iran. The Ukraine issue will be an early test for South Korea's incoming President Yoon Song-yeol, who takes office next month. He says he wants to make South Korea more of a global player. But he could be constrained by the situation in South Korea's immediate neighborhood. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars, coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered. California's state Senate approves a measure to allow non-citizens to become police officers. Also, the new book exploring the relationship between the rise of the Nazi party in Germany and some of Germany's wealthiest families. That's coming up the next 10 minutes or so. Tomorrow on WBUR's All Things Considered, a local filmmaker's latest project shines a spotlight on a deeply personal challenge for his family. I think it's one of those things that uh, you're trying to make something whole. 
I think I wanted to get his memories back so we could go back to before the brain injury. Tim O'Donnell talks about his documentary about his father's recovery from a life-changing fall tomorrow here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies tonight with gusty winds, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. The time is 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham, inviting you May 2nd to 4th to explore the revolutionary power of gene and cell therapies at the World Medical Innovation Forum. Hear from doctors, scientists, investors, and entrepreneurs leading the transformation of healthcare with presenting sponsor Bank of America, worldmedicalinnovation.org. People have stopped wearing masks and don't want to take precautions. And so, yeah, I think anybody who is out and about and mingling with people should expect to get infected at some point. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Rob Schmitz. When comedian Jon Stewart accepted the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts on Sunday, he affirmed the point of the award to honor those who use humor to shine a light on truth and justice. Comedy doesn't change the world, but it's a bellwether. We're the banana peel in the coal mine. When a society is under threat, Comedians are the ones who get sent away first. It's just a reminder to people that democracy is under threat. Authoritarians are the threat to comedy, to art, to music, to thought, to poetry, to progress, to all those things. Critic Bob Mondello says that speech set him to thinking about how the arts, especially how the movies, have dealt with authoritarians. In Shakespeare's day, only fools could speak truth to power. King Lear's fool, for instance, after the king gave away his kingdom to his daughters. Thou art too much of late in the frown. Oh, thou wast a pretty fellow, and thou hadst no need to care for her frowning. I am better than thou art now. I am a fool, but thou art nothing. Oh, yes, pursuit. On stage, tyrants granted fools special dispensation. They could say what they wanted because, as jokesters, no one took them seriously. They served at the pleasure of the crown. And off stage, so did playwrights. The spiritual descendants of those playwrights now work in the film industry, and at least in Hollywood, they don't have to worry much about catering to tyrants, unless you count studio bosses. For the most part, depicting authoritarians as monsters is so not a problem, it's become Hollywood's default position, whether absolute power is being wielded by a Sith Lord. Your arrogance blinds you, Master Yoda. Now you will experience the full power of the dark side. Or by a despot who stages hunger games. Why do we have a winner? Hope. It is the only thing stronger than fear. Or by a fashion designer whose iron fist comes sheathed in a velvet glove. I don't understand why it's so difficult to confirm the point. I know, I'm so sorry, Miranda. I actually did confirm last night. Your incompetence do not interest me. Casting a jaundiced eye on those who wield power has a long history in Hollywood, dating back at least to the 1930s when Charlie Chaplin caught a screening of the Nazi propaganda film Triumph of the Will. The film's effectiveness at portraying Adolf Hitler as almost godlike terrified most observers 
years, but Chaplin reportedly cracked up at director Lenny Riefenstahl's excesses. As his little tramp already had the toothbrush mustache, he figured two could play at this game, and in his satirical 1940 comedy, The Great Dictator, he mocked the German Fuhrer by playing Adnoid Hinkle, the Fui of Tomania. Hinkle the dictator ruled the nation with an iron fist. Under the new emblem of the double cross, liberty was banished, free speech was suppressed, and only the voice of Hinkel was heard. Chaplin said in his autobiography that he couldn't have made the film funny if he'd known then the full extent of Nazi evil, but ridiculing Hitler as a clown worked for audiences. Chaplin wasn't the first comic to mock strongmen in an era noted for strongmen. In 1933, Duck Soup cast Groucho Marx as a goofy tyrant, Rufus T. Firefly, in a satirical look at how nations were dealing with the Great Depression. We've got to start looking for a new treasurer. But you appointed one last week. That's the one I'm looking for. And astonishingly, that same year, the entirely serious drama, Gabriel Over the White House, offered an approving look at a president who thought tyranny was the ideal way to lift the U.S. economy. I shall assume full responsibility for the government. Mr. President, this is dictatorship. Senator Langham, words do not frighten me. But the United States of America is a democracy. Gabriel Over the White House was financed by right-wing newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst and admired by no less a progressive than President Franklin Roosevelt. And it made a tidy little profit at the box office preaching fascism. If what I plan to do in the name of the people makes me a dictator, then it is a dictatorship based on Jefferson's definition of democracy. A government for the greatest good of the greatest number. After World War II, this notion of a benign dictatorship couldn't play anymore for most audiences, and Hollywood fell back on time-honored notions, none more time-honored than Roman emperors persecuting Christians. Peter Ustinov's vain Nero, for instance, in the Oscar winner Quo Vadis. You are right, Petronius. How they love me. In the 1950s, when Hollywood needed a despot tamed, it called on Deborah Carr. Nero was a lost cause, so while he fiddled and Rome burned, Carr set about taming Robert Taylor's jerk of a Roman general. Uniting and civilizing the world under one power, I have to spill a little blood no. to do it. There's a gentler and more powerful way of doing that without bloodshed and war. A few years later, she did her best to tame Yul Brenner's petulant Siamese monarch in The King and I. You are a very difficult woman. Perhaps so, Your Majesty. But you'll observe care that head shall never be higher than mine. When I shall sit, you shall sit. When I shall kneel, you shall kneel. Etc., etc., etc. It took more to bring him around than whistling a happy tune, but she did it. These were hardly realistic portrayals, but over the next few decades, filmmakers increasingly gave us films about the ousting of tyrants that were realistic. The struggle against Greece's military junta in the film Z. The wrenching last months of Argentina's military dictatorship in the Oscar-winning The Official Story. A feel-good film about the Chilean campaign to oust Augusto Pinochet in No. But perhaps no film about a despot hit harder than one set in the East African nation of Uganda. In The Last King of Scotland, Forrest Whitaker played the corrupt general-turned-brutal dictator Idi Amin, taking audiences from his populist early days... Into my heart, I am a simple man. ...all the way to the paranoid reign of terror that earned him the moniker The Butcher of Uganda. I am surrounded by traitors. To pity's sake, I am a madman. The American, I am a cannibal. These 
What nearly all these films have in common is a conviction that authoritarians must ultimately fail. In fact, way back in 1940, that's the sentiment that Charlie Chaplin used to end The Great Dictator. After clowning for two hours, he addressed the camera as a lowly barber who had, in an unlikely plot twist, switched places with the fooey, and in his own voice, without any comic flourishes at all, he spoke for several minutes from the heart. I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. It's hard to imagine today how audiences received this speech in the run-up to World War II. Critics thought its lack of comedy broke the film's spell, but it's undeniably arresting as a capper to what would become Chaplin's biggest commercial success, something I thought about when I heard John Stewart's acceptance speech for the Mark Twain Prize, which you'll be able to watch for yourself on PBS on June 21st. Stewart has built his career on directly and sincerely addressing his audience, leaving jokes aside at times, saying things like this. Is comedy going to survive in this new moment? I've got news for you. Comedy survives every moment. Even ones where madmen run the show and laughs catch in your throat. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. From Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is WBUR. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, how researchers are turning to video games to help treat cognitive disorders. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies tonight, lows dropping to the mid-30s with gusty winds at times. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Moderna asks the Food and Drug Administration to authorize its COVID vaccine for kids under five, something the agency likely won't consider until at least June. It's Thursday, April 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, why the FDA apparently doesn't plan to consider the request for at least a month. Also this hour, after yesterday's U.S.-Russian prisoner swap, the story of one American still trapped in Russian custody after traveling there for a wedding four years ago. The night of the wedding, before the wedding even started, he was entrapped by the security services, by a friend, and he disappeared. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, the surprise drop in U.S. GDP in the first quarter and what it means for the months ahead. It's 6.01. 
First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is calling on Congress to approve $33 billion to help Ukraine fend off Russia's invasion. As NPR's Asma Khalid reports, it's an indication the White House sees the conflict potentially dragging on for months. A bulk of this money, roughly $20 billion, is for security assistance, things like ammunition, armored vehicles, and unmanned aircraft systems. Most of the rest is for economic aid and humanitarian assistance. This ask is more than double the amount of money Congress has authorized so far, but the president says it's needed to keep weapons flowing to Ukrainians so they can keep up the fight. The cost of this fight uh, is not cheap, but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. The White House also announced a plan today to allow the federal government greater access to seize and liquidate assets from Russian oligarchs and then send that money back to Ukraine. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Meanwhile, Moscow's offensive in eastern Ukraine appears to be picking up steam, and some observers say it's also becoming increasingly likely Russian President Vladimir Putin is looking to score some type of major battlefield victory prior to May 9th. May 9th is known as Victory Day in Russia, an important date for that country. Ukrainian authorities are reporting intense Russian fire in the Donbass, an eastern part of Ukraine Moscow would like to capture. Shortly after a meeting between Ukraine's president and the chief of the UN wrapped up, the attacks intensified, including explosions that rocked the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas faced another grilling on Capitol Hill today. NPR's Joel Rose reports Mayorkas faced more questions about the administration's record at the southern border. In a possible preview of GOP midterm election strategy, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee tried to portray large numbers of migrants crossing the southern border as a danger and a burden. Here's ranking member Jim Jordan of Ohio. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, your actions and your policies are encouraging migrants to come to the border? I do not. I I think that... Over the course of the four-hour hearing, Republicans interrupted Mayorkas, called him a traitor, and threatened to impeach him. Mayorkas said migrants have a right to seek asylum under U.S. law and should not be smeared with a, quote, broad brush of criminality. He said the greatest terror-related threat to national security is domestic extremism. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. In its initial look at economic growth for the first three months of this year, the government says the nation's gross domestic product actually shrank. The first time that's happened since a brief pandemic recession two years ago. Government reporting the GDP, which measures goods and services within U.S. borders, shrank at a 1.4 percent annual rate. Still, most economists shrugged off the idea another recession is imminent. Stocks gained ground today. The Dow was up 614 points. The Nasdaq rose 382 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The state attorney general's office has reached an agreement with two firms accused of discriminating against tenants who receive Section 8 housing vouchers. Companies pledged to stop the practices and pay a $100,000 fine. WBUR Simone Rios reports. The companies Buildium LLC and Tenant Turner Inc. offer tenant screening software for landlords. Abby Taylor is head of the AG's Civil Rights Division. She says the tool allowed landlords to check a box excluding Section 8 recipients, as well as people with certain felony convictions. If landlords are discriminating based on receipt of government housing vouchers, then those government housing vouchers can't do their job of helping to ensure that people have safe and stable housing here in Massachusetts. 
Taylor says the AG's office will continue to root out so-called source-of-income discrimination by companies offering tenant screening software. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. The Massachusetts economy is off to a slow start this year after rapid growth at the end of 2021. New figures out today show the state's economy shrank at an annualized rate of 1% in the first quarter. Economists blame high inflation and ongoing problems with the supply chain. Northeastern University professor emeritus Alan Clayton Matthews points out the U.S. trade deficit was also a factor, but says that is forecast to be short-lived. Now that inventories are lower, that could give a boost to growth next quarter. And economists expect positive growth next quarter. Local economists with the journal Mass Benchmarks project slow growth over the next six months. Clayton Matthews says the forecast depends on the success of the Federal Reserve to curb inflation without triggering a recession. Leaders in the state Senate have scheduled a vote on a bill that would allow people in the country illegally to apply for a driver's license. The House passed a similar bill back in February. Senate President Karen Spilka says the proposal is good for public safety. Though Governor Charlie Baker says he has concerns. The vote is set for next Thursday. A state representative from Worcester is apologizing after he was charged with driving while intoxicated. Police arrested 32-year-old David LaBeouf earlier this week after drivers reported his car operating erratically on I-93. He was taken into custody after failing several sobriety tests. LaBeouf tweeted today he struggled with addiction and is committed to getting treatment. He calls his actions an egregious lapse in judgment. Sports Red Sox fell to the Blue Jays 1-0. Bruins will be at home tonight against the Buffalo Sabres, and the Celtics are off until next week. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies tonight with gusty winds, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy skies tomorrow, still windy, highs in the lower 50s. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Big news today for parents of young kids. Moderna announced it has asked the Food and Drug Administration to authorize the first COVID-19 vaccine for babies and toddlers and other very young children. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. So it has been so close and yet so far for parents of these very young kids. Is it actually here? Is a COVID-19 vaccine for really young kids on the horizon? Yeah, well, it looks like we're finally getting closer if the FDA agrees to authorize the vaccine, you know, and that would mean for the first time, kids younger than age five, in fact, babies as young as six months old would finally be eligible to get immunized against COVID-19, which would be huge for all those parents out there who've been anxiously waiting to protect their littlest kids. Here's Dr. Sean O'Leary. He's a pediatrician at Children's Hospital Colorado who advises the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm excited. You know, we've been waiting for this for a while now. We've been, you know, hoping for a vaccine for these younger kids for quite some time. So I think, you know, overall, this is great news. Especially now that so many people have stopped wearing masks and infections are creeping up again. Okay, so we hear the excitement from from a pediatrician there, but we've all learned by now that um, Moderna asking for authorization is one step of several that would need to transpire. What are the prospects for this vaccine getting authorized? 
Well, you know, Moderna says a study involving almost 7,000 kids clearly shows that a low-dose version of its adult vaccine does what it needs to do. It safely stimulates the immune system of little kids just enough to generate enough antibodies to protect them. Here's what Dr. Paul Burton, Moderna's chief medical officer, told me about this. The level of antibody that we see clearly shows that we should have very good protection against severe disease and hospitalization, which is what obviously counts most. So overall, it's a very, very strong result, very reassuring result for parents and for physicians. Now, Moderna acknowledges that the vaccine looks like it's only 51% effective at preventing infections and mild illness for kids between the ages of six months and two years, and only 37% effective for those two through five. Hmm. So that's disappointing, but, you know, not surprising because it was tested after Omicron and it had already taken over, and we know the vaccine just don't work as well against Omicron. But it does look like this vaccine would do the most important thing, protect against serious illness. Rob, what about the when? Uh, when right. could this vaccine become available? Yeah, you know, that's the source of some tension right now. Moderna says the company is getting the FDA everything it needs to authorize the vaccine by the end of May. But NPR has learned that the FDA probably won't take this up until June because the agency says it needs to wait for all the data to come in and it'll take time to carefully review it. But any further delays would really disappoint many pediatricians and parents. Here's Fatima Khan. She's the mother of a four-year-old from San Francisco who's been lobbying for a vaccine for young kids. If the FDA holds back on reviewing Moderna's data, I think that would be outrageous. We have been waiting a very long time for our younger kids to, to get the same protection that everyone else has had during this pandemic. Now, the FDA says it will act as quickly as possible and not cut any corners. Here's how Dr. Peter Marks from the FDA put it at a congressional hearing this week. Simply making a vaccine available doesn't matter if parents don't get their kids vaccinated. So it's critically important that we have the proper evaluation so that parents will have trust in any vaccines that we authorize. That's such a key point, Rob, trust. How much of a demand will there be for this vaccine? What's your sense? Yes, you know, there clearly are many parents who will rush out to vaccinate these youngest kids. But remember, most of the older kids who have been eligible for months still aren't vaccinated. And polling indicates that all the delays with this vaccine have heightened reservations among parents of these youngest kids. So, you know, it's unlikely most will be lining up at least right away at their pediatrician's office for the shots. Thank you, Rob. You're welcome anytime. And PR's Rob Stein. Trevor Reed, a U.S. citizen and former Marine who'd been imprisoned in Russia for 985 days, is back in the United States today. Russia released Reed in exchange for a pilot who was serving time in the U.S. on drug smuggling charges. We want to turn to a man who was left behind, another U.S. citizen and former Marine, Paul Whelan, who's serving a 16-year sentence of hard labor in Russia. Whelan was detained in a Moscow hotel in 2018 and was accused of spying. We're joined by Paul's twin brother, David. David, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. First of all, David, how are you and how is your family? Well, yesterday was a, a bittersweet day. It was a very hard day and today we're sort of back to work. Uh, you deal with the events that take place and then you move on. Um, I think it was hard for my parents to learn that Paul wasn't going to be coming home and then having to perhaps not break the news to him, but have to be the ones who get the message, which is why was I left behind? And so you mentioned that you were in touch with your brother. Um, how, how is he doing? 
He is probably as well as you could be in a Russian labor camp. Uh, they don't provide nutritional meals and they don't really uh, take too much uh, care of the prisoners. There's a lot of corruption and other abuse. So I think he does his best to stay out of people's uh, way. Uh, and uh, before the sanctions hit, we were able to get money into his prison account and on his phone card. So hopefully for the near future, he'll be able to be all right. What, what do you mean by that? What, what Can you explain what this card is and how that works? Prisoners in Russian prisons have like a prison bank account where family can deposit money so that the prisoner can buy things from the prison commissary. We have a process of transferring money to the State Department. The State Department transfers it so that it's available to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And then Moscow disperses money as needed into those two accounts. And so it, it's a, a thin pipeline uh, that allows us to support Paul. And if anything disrupts that, if the staff uh, in Moscow leave, if sanctions stop us from making those sorts of transfers, uh, it makes it much more difficult. Yesterday, NPR spoke with State Department spokesman Ned Price. He did not offer a lot of information about your brother's case. Have they been more open or, or provided more details to you and your family? No. And I, I think that that is not too much of a surprise to us. I think the communication that we've had from the Biden administration, certainly the last 15 months has been substantially more than we had in the first two years of Paul's detention. Hmm. But the it happens sporadically, and it happens tend, mostly at a lower level, the uh, care and feeding end of the uh, spectrum. So weekly calls with the U.S. Embassy staff in Moscow, regular interactions with the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs office, right. but less so at the top and less so uh, to know about what sort of decisions are being taken or discounted, what options are available or uh, which ones aren't. For those listeners who don't know, can you remind us about the circumstances of Paul's detention in 2018? Uh, why was he in Russia and, and what happened? Yeah, it's a bit tragic. Uh, he had volunteered to go with a fellow Marine to help the Marine who was having a wedding in Moscow. He was going to the wedding and then he was going on to St. Petersburg to see some other friends and then he was coming home. And uh, the night of the wedding, before the wedding even started, he was entrapped by the security services by a, a friend uh, who he had had in Russia wow. and, uh, and he disappeared. And that's when we first learned about it. Wow. That, I mean, that just sounds so traumatic for you and your family. I mean, how... Has his time in prison since 2018, you know, affected your family financially? Well, uh, unfortunately, every family has to look at its resources right from the very start. And the, the first thing we realized that we might not be able to trust the government lawyers that had been given to Paul. He was assigned a Russian-speaking uh, lawyer only on the first day. So obviously not a lot of thought put into what Paul's defense would be since Paul doesn't speak Russian. Um, huh. But we also very quickly came to the realization that we couldn't afford for a private Russian lawyer. In essence, we had to make decisions about whether you know our parents would be able to retire or take their money out of their retirement to pay for these sorts of things. And we have decided to try and be a little bit uh, thrifty in that. Right. Um, you know, you and your family have been fighting this fight for a few years now. How has the war and Russia's war in Ukraine impacted your efforts to try and get your brother released? It hasn't really impacted too many efforts. The U.S. and Russian relationship is in a terrible state, but it is still in a state. Uh, and I think Trevor Reed's release shows that there is something actually going on there. But the war itself... Paul is in a labor camp and it's become a little bit more difficult. There are fewer uh, options, for example, to use things like Western Union who have pulled out of Russia. Mm -hmm. But we, the care and feeding flow seems to be continuing so long as that relationship still exists. Right. So you've noted that Russia has long wanted the release of Konstantin Yaroshenko, the Russian prisoner traded for Reed. Uh, do you know of 
any other Russian prisoners in U.S. custody who could be traded for your brother? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Paul has made it clear that that very first weekend before he was given consular access, uh, right after he was given a uh, an FSB-appointed lawyer, he was told that he was being arrested in order to be exchanged for Mr. Victor Boot, the merchant of death, and for Mr. Yaroshenko. And so it really has been the entirety of the time that he has been detained that those two names have come up repetitively from the Russian side, in Russian media, from Russian government officials, that those were two people they wanted returned. And then there's been a, a slightly changing cast of characters. At one point, it was also Roman Seleznev, who is the son of a Duma legislator. Um, so there are other people, but it's usually been those two. So Paul was actually told this by an FSB lawyer, uh, like upon his arrest, that, look, we're, we're basically arresting you because we want some Russian prisoners uh, released from the U.S. Absolutely. That's that's what he has relayed to us. And based on the fact that they charged him with espionage, which was probably the most ludicrous thing they could have charged him with, uh, and the whole mockery of justice that has gone on since then, uh, I don't think there's any reason to doubt. What's next for you and your family in your fight to get Paul home? Well, I guess we continue to do what we've done day to day in the same way that Paul, in order to survive over there, is going to have to look at one day at a time. Uh, I think that our family has to do the same. And hopefully those days don't accumulate too far. And I think that that's sort of where we are questioning a lot after uh, Trevor's release yesterday, which I'm so thrilled for. But it really puts into perspective, are there limitations to what the U.S. government can or is willing to do? What are those difficult decisions uh, against which uh, President Biden uh, came up against? It's given us a lot of things that we need to be considering. That's David Whalen, the twin brother of Paul Whalen, who is imprisoned in Russia. David, thank you so much and good luck to you and your family. Thanks. It's been nice to be on. It's WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the Polish farmers organizing weekly shipments of protective equipment to Ukrainian soldiers. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com, and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. On Wall Street, stocks rose sharply today. The Dow was up 614 points, nearly 2% at 33,916. NASDAQ rose 382 points, more than 3% at 12,871. And the S&P 500 gained 103 points to end the day at 4,287. The time is 619. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Somerville Open Studios this weekend. See works by hundreds of local artists at the Somerville Museum and over 70 city locations. SomervilleOpenStudios.org And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In the forecast, it will be increasing clouds tonight, lows dropping to the mid-30s with a gusty wind at times. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, highs in the lower 50s, and then Saturday, partly cloudy and warmer with highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com and summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The White House is asking Congress for $33 billion in aid for Ukraine. Much of that money would go towards replenishing Ukraine's weapons, something that Polish farmers are also trying to do. NPR's Joanna Kikissis has our story. Krzysztof Detz checks a tractor on the farm where he grows wheat, corn, and beets in the Polish village of Kojenice, just nine miles from the Ukrainian border. When the Russians bombed a Ukrainian military training center near the border last month, Detz felt the shocks as he walked on his land. He's got three young boys and he worries about nuclear war. This war has changed our lives and routines dramatically. The first thing we do every day is check the news and see what's happening on the front line. He wants to help Ukraine survive. And so do his friends Jan and Eva Toborovich, who run a dairy farm in a nearby village. The couple is housing several Ukrainian families on their farm. Farmers feel the weight of this war, Ava says, because we know what it's doing to food insecurity around the world. But there is a much more immediate need, helping Ukraine's soldiers who are running out of supplies. Ava San Mikowai says that's the main mission now. We can help them to be better organized on the battlefield. Maybe more people will survive. Across the border in Ukraine, Artur Harmidor was tackling the same question. He's from the western city of Lviv and is plugged into Ukraine's supply networks. Speaking by phone, Harmidor tells us that Ukrainian soldiers expect the war to last for months at least and are running out of equipment. The soldiers' texts are called to tell me what they need. Requests include basics, like ammunition or ski masks, and more serious items, like thermographic cameras and drones. Harmidar had struggled to source this equipment. It's very expensive and also hard to find. Back in Poland, Mikovai Toborowicz talked it over with his parents and Krzysztof Detz, the first farmer we met. That's immediately started calling suppliers. We reached out to larger farms and big companies, and they responded really positively. Some companies agreed to donate tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. This shows just how important it is for Poles that Ukrainians win this war. A few weeks ago, Mikovai loaded the first batch of donated equipment into his van and drove it to Lviv. Ukrainian drivers picked it up from there. For a week or so, Krzysztof Detz wondered what happened to the delivery. He talked to his sons, ages 7, 8, and 9, about the night goggles, the bulletproof vests, the helmets. The boys imagined this equipment was protecting warriors against a very bad dragon, which is what they call Russian President Vladimir Putin. The equipment reached a Ukrainian territorial defense unit in Sumy, a vulnerable northeastern Ukrainian city just 30 miles from the Russian border. Detz was thrilled to see photos of the soldiers holding up the equipment he helped secure. Hello. 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 
We reached Natalia, one of the soldiers in Sumi. She gives only one name. She says the night vision goggles have been especially helpful in spotting ambushes. If we get even one such thing, it helps save not only the citizens' lives, but also the lives of fighters. She says she hopes the farmers don't forget about them. And they have not. That says they're already planning their next delivery. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kozhenitsa, Poland. Video games can amuse or distract, sometimes inspire, which means they engage the brain with tasks. So some researchers are hoping video games could help treat cognitive disorders from depression and ADHD to mental decline from aging. Keller Gordon reported about this for NPR.org. Welcome, Keller. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Keller, you start by describing a video game developed at a lab at the University of Utah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this isn't a game you get on the App Store or PlayStation or anything like that. It's from a federally funded nonprofit lab that makes games dedicated to treating cognitive disorders, mostly those in aging brains. I spoke with Dr. Sarah Morimoto, who runs this program called Neurogrow. It doesn't exactly look like a normal video game. You've got a basic, colorful screen, and you might have to complete certain tasks, like watering a flower with a certain color watering can before time runs out. Hmm. It's got a pretty rudimentary design, but it challenges a patient's memory and reaction time. And it's not supposed to be fun, it's (laughs) therapy. But Dr. Morimoto thinks the results are promising. I definitely feel like the science has been greatly advanced by working with video game researchers and designers. So, Keller, that's the researcher. What do her patients say? What did you hear from them? Yeah, I spoke with Pete and Pam Stevens about their experience using the NeuroGirl program. Pam had suffered a stroke in 2014 and wasn't responding to medication. Her neurologist gave them a pretty grim prognosis. He, on two separate occasions over a two-year period, had said there was nothing we could do. Just take her home and be prepared. She's going to die. Jeez. Yeah, it's pretty rough, but they weren't ready to give up. They found out about Morimoto's program in 2018, and after a few neurogrow sessions, Pam would be exhausted, like she had just finished a workout. But it was helping. Hmm. Now, Pam didn't say much to me in our interview, but Pete says he started noticing improvements in her mental health. Before our interview, Pete mentioned that Pam was actually reading a book on cognitive behavioral therapy. Wow, that's a really good sign. So that's a government-funded project. Are private companies getting into video game therapy as well? Yeah, let me tell you about one of them. There is Achille Interactive Labs, a very different organization with very different funding. Mm -hmm. They developed a game called Endeavor RX. This looks more like a popular mobile game like Subway Surfers or a game that's actually, you know, supposed to be fun. Right. And the FDA actually gave Endeavor RX their blessing. They classified it as something that could be used to treat inattention in children with ADHD. But there are also critics. Some scientists call it a marketing ploy. They say patients who play the game will only really get better at playing games like it, like Mario Kart. Here's how Eddie Martucci, CEO of Achille, responded to that criticism. I think the reason there's skepticism is people have been burned by like marketing gimmicks, especially in digital health and especially in neuroscience and, and areas like ADHD. There's been a lot of snake oil and over time, skepticism has dramatically decreased as we continue to research and show data. So that makes sense. Uh, But where is this all going? Are we getting to the point where you will see video games prescribed by a doctor? 
Well, theoretically, the FDA has already allowed that for Endeavor RX. Huh. The company behind it got hundreds of millions of new capital in a merger. Dr. Morimoto's lab, again, out of university, is very different. They follow an academic path, and NeuroGrow is an experimental therapy that's still only available to a few patients. But they've got a lot of government funding, a $7.5 million grant. So watch this space. It's very likely to keep growing. We will continue to watch. That's Keller Gordon, who contributes to NPR's video game coverage. Thank you so much, Keller. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. Tonight, the surprise drop for U.S. GDP in the first three months of the year and what that means for the economy in the months ahead. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies tonight with gusty winds, lows dropping to the mid-30s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston at 6.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. And Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at MassCulturalCouncil.org.